on uh, January 31st of 2013 in an adjacent county, it was Kaufman County, uh, there was a, uh, a prosecutor that was gunned down in the public square named Mark Hassey. Many of you probably remember that. Um, there was then uh, Texas Rangers and uh, all local investigators put on the, the case. They began to thumb through files and files and files of Mark Hassey's prosecuting days, which actually led him from Dallas County out to Kaufman County. They come up with nothing. Um, they have some speculation about who could have been. Eventually, uh, a gentleman named Mark, McCle- uh, Cle- Mark McClellan and his wife Cynthia, who was the leading DA in the county, were also um, gunned down in their own home on the weekend of March 30th, which was Easter weekend of 2013. Um, that then began to, to lead to other cases and speculation. They eventually land on a gentleman named Eric Williams. Eric was the, the former justice of the peace in the county, uh, but he was prosecuted for stealing three computers in which he was believed that he could use for his own personal reasons at home. Uh, these two men uh, prosecute him, and he leaves... Uh, his seat is just of the peace. Eventually, he's banned uh, from being uh, a lawyer here in the state. Um, it was a revenge act, and uh, it eventually that led to them coming to the point where they landed on him significantly because he was the only person that both Mark McClellan and Mark uh, that Mike McClellan and Mark Cassie worked together. Now, what's interesting is is that even though they had him as the lead guy, they couldn't put all the pieces together. They searched his home, came up with very little evidence, other than the fact that he had uh, done some uh, stuff through Crime Stoppers. They had a handful of leads there. But eventually, uh, they had a a witness come forward that believed they might have rented him a storage place in in, uh, the area of Siegelville. Um, that kind of Balk Springs area. That eventually led them to the car. The car led them to a series of weapons. Through forensics and science, they didn't have the criminal weapon. Eventually, though, another person comes forward, a lead person in the case, uh, and, and that was Eric Williams' wife, Kim. Kim was the lead driver in both of the scenarios. She was the getaway they caught this particular car, a Crown Victoria, a white one. Uh, they caught it on surveillance camera, eventually had conversations with her. She eventually leads them um, to weapons that were located in Lake Tawakany, tied up in a mask, dumped off the two-mile bridge. All of this, investigation, witnesses, forensic science, leads to a place where you have the conclusion that Eric Williams was guilty, even though to this day he still has not said so himself. So what do you do when you have a person who says as an, uh, an account that he's not guilty, but all of the investigation, all the witnesses, all the forensic science say otherwise? What do you have? You have a guilty verdict. Eric Williams is still in prison today, his wife Kim as well, because she corroborated with all of him as an accomplice. But here's the deal. I think about the, the idea of the resurrection, a story that I've heard all my life, one that I've celebrated um, dozens of times. What do you do when you come to the resurrection and you look at it as a, a place in history, but you wonder, could it really have occurred? Because do you ever have doubts in your mind, maybe like just somewhere in your heart, you go, could this really have happened like, could really anyone come back from the dead? Because you don't hear stories like that all the time, right? Ever been to a funeral and someone just kind of set up in the casket? Like, no, right? It doesn't happen. 
And so I can understand, as I've talked with friends over the years, that they would have doubts. They would have confusion, even about the grand stories in the Bible that we would read, like crossing the Red Sea or a guy named Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. All of those could be problematic for us, especially when it comes to the resurrection, a guy who was dead for three days and then all of a sudden came back to life. But today, what I want to do is I want to spend a few moments. I want to first, let's just set ourselves in this place that was in Jerusalem in that day. Then from there, I want to ask a handful of questions that we explore together to help us come to a place of a solid conclusion together, at least to have some things that we have as thought-provoking questions for each other. And then we walk out of here and decide for ourselves what might have happened back a couple of thousand years ago. Now, to help set the scene, uh, there is a guy named Matthew. Matthew uh, was an apostle of Jesus, but the reason that we can use his uh, his story today is not because I believe the Bible is true, but because there are other people who would corroborate his story as outside sources. Justin the Martyr, Tertullian, Tacitus, Josephus, several of them would say that the accounts that Matthew used to kind of set the stage are accurate. And so we're going to base it off of that, not just Matthew's account, but others' accounts. And here's what we want to do is we're going to start in Matthew chapter 27. And I'm going to show you a handful of verses, 24 through 26. If you don't have a Bible, uh, certainly we'll put it for you up in the screen. Uh, if you would like a Bible, we'd love to bless you one today uh, with one today as our guest. Uh, if you're joining us online, obviously we're glad that you're with us as well. Matthew chapter 27, Matthew says this, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, that is with the crowds, um, as they were seeking to try Jesus, it says, but rather than a, uh, there was a riot that was beginning. So he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on all of our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, a criminal, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So here's the events in Jerusalem. They have taken into custody this guy named Jesus who was a, uh, claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be Messiah. They thought he was blaspheming. So they uh, go before Pilate. They go, Pilate, will you just take him to custody? Release Barabbas, the criminal. Pilate says, listen, his blood's not going to be on my hands. And so he, he just says, I'll release him. And so he releases this known criminal, Barabbas, and instead takes on Jesus. And then we know that he is to be scourged and we, he is to be crucified. Now, real quickly, let's just set the event and the stage of what a scourging would have looked like in this day and time. So what you have is a group of soldiers that would have been committed to making sure that a scourging took place. Now, in this particular case, we know from Matthew's account that Matthew said there was an entire battalion that was there when Jesus was crucified or, or that he, when he was scourged. Now, this battalion would have been, back in that day, around 600 men. Now, we don't know for sure if there were 600, but what we could easily assume that there were several hundred men as eyewitness accounts to the scourging of Jesus. We also know through Roman history that the men that were in charge of scourging Jesus would have been very precise at what they did. They were known to be able to, with precision, kill men with excellence. Now, you might ask the question, why does that matter? And here's why. Because if you were a Roman soldier in that day and time, and you were to be a part of a scourging or the crucifixion for a known criminal, then their life would oftentimes be exchanged for yours if they escaped or if their death did not happen with accuracy. So basically, if Jesus would have escaped somehow or he would have gotten away, one of those Roman soldiers' lives would have been on the line. Now, a Roman soldier wouldn't have been able to be scourged, but certainly could have been crucified. So the people that could have been scourged were men, 
Women are Roman citizens unless you were a Roman senator or a Roman soldier that hadn't gone AWOL. So you or anybody else would not have been exempt from the scourging. And scourging, what it was, was a post that would be set uh, in, in this area where they would tie a man to. Now this post, just think of it like a, a large cedar pole at about 15 inches in diameter. It would have been set maybe about eight foot high. And then what they would do is they would take a man and they would chain his arms to the top of that post and then they would strip him all the way bare. Then what they would do is they would have two men that had a flagellum. It was a, it was a flogging device. It had a handle with leather straps entwined in it. On the leather straps, there were lead balls. There were shards of glass, there were lamb bones, and uh, there were metal objects that would be used. And the reason why is because what they wanted to do were to give 39 lashes to prepare a person for eventual crucifixion. What they would do is if they've attached a guy to the flogging post and stripped him bare, is they would have a soldier that would start on the right-hand shoulder, and they would bring the first flog or the scourge, and they would rip from the very top of the right shoulder all the way down to the left lower buttocks. That was flog one. Then they would alternate sides, and they would start from the left top shoulder, and they would flog, and they would rip down all the way down, and they would come to the lower right buttocks. 39 times you would have lead balls, glass, bone, and metal shards penetrating into the man that was being scourged. Now, what we do know from Matthew's account is that Jesus not only endured a scourging, but we know other details. That as he was being scourged, that many soldiers lined up and punched him in the face. They took a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and pushed it down. We know that he, he uh, had blood and, and skin and he was marred even beyond recognition. We know that they insulted him and hurled at him things as they put a rod in his hand. All hell, king of the Jews. Save yourself. They spit on him. They beat him. They plucked his beard. They cussed him. They did all types of inhumane things to him in that day and time because Rome was in charge of the world. And then they led him up a hill towards toward a place called Golgotha to be crucified. What we do know, though, is that Jesus was too weak to carry the crossbar of the cross himself. And so we know that they got Simon to carry the crossbar. But Jesus was too weak at this point He eventually is hung on the cross by 9 a.m. on a Friday. He is dead by 3 p.m., taken off the cross after they have thrust a spear through the right side of his body. The question that you have to ask yourself is, is after they take Jesus and lay him in the tomb, is it possible for question number one to have existed, that Jesus swooned or that he lost consciousness after fainting? So is it possible that Jesus didn't actually die? Is it plausible that Jesus was put into the tomb after 39 lashes from top to bottom, carrying a a part of the cross, which we know physically he was too weak to do, then nailed to the cross? Now, when he was nailed to the cross, just let me make it clear, spikes were driven through his fist, and then two uh, uh, feet were put together, and one was driven through the middle part of his foot. That would nail him to the cross. We know that after he's endured this scourging, it would have been very painful for him to even raise his back on a wooden cross of all that he's endured. He's got contusions, hematomas, there's blood that obviously uh, has bled, been ripped back open time and time again as he's enduring this for hours. Is it possible? 
that he just fainted, lost consciousness. Now, what I want you to think about is just this day and time. Let's say that you had a similar type of event. Maybe there was someone involved in a motorcycle accident that involved similar, maybe not exactly the same type of details, but you had cuts and scrapes and you had a very serious and traumatic injury. Is it plausible that a person would get up and walk out of the hospital after three days? Especially if you had no medical care, no IV fluids, no antibiotics, no other medicines that keep you sedated. Is it possible or is it plausible? And I think most of us say, no, I don't think so. If you're an EMT, you're a nurse, you've uh, worked with physicians of some time, you're the medical, or maybe you've had a family member to suffer a traumatic event like that, you would go, That's, that doesn't seem plausible, right? Uh, many years ago, if you know my story, my dad had a severe and traumatic brain injury. As I looked at my dad and I saw him lay there in a sedated place as his brain was swelling and he was beyond recognition, I knew it was not possible for my dad to get up and walk out of the hospital. It wasn't. For 34 days, we awaited his prognosis. As he came out of it and he was restored to health, even then he was so physically weak that he wasn't able to to walk without rehab from a significant event like this. Now, the reason I ask that is because this is a plausible theory that has been passed on for the ages. Is it possible that Jesus fainted, that he swooned, that at some point he came back to life? And here's what I would just tell you. I don't think so. But let's go outside, another source, someone that would have studied this more closely. And we go to a group of of people that studied this, and they published an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 1986 on the physical death of Jesus. And this is what they concluded based off the interpretations of Jesus fainting or losing consciousness. This is what they said. Based off in any assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appears to be at odds with all modern medical knowledge. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. So modern medical science would suggest that there's no way plausible that a guy like Jesus endured 39 scourgings walked to Golgotha, hung on the cross for six hours, speared in the side, and somehow fainted or lost consciousness? That's the question. But here's the deal. Let's just perhaps say, okay, it's plausible. Maybe it did happen. Maybe, maybe it did. It leads us to question number two, though. Where is the body of Jesus? Because you do have to think about this. Now, I want you to think about this idea. Where's the body of Jesus? Are there some plausible scenarios that we have to walk through? And I would say, absolutely. There are some things we have to talk through and walk through. And so let's do that. With that in mind, I want you to see what's happening in this day and time. After the resurrection, after the body of Jesus is gone, there there is a little bit of commotion. And obviously, it would cause some commotion. But Matthew writes about that. Look at Matthew says in Matthew 27, verses 64 and 66. Now, in verse 62, what you have is you have the scribes and the Pharisees approaching Pilate on the Sabbath, which they weren't to work on. Uh, They go to him on the Sabbath, and here's what they said. We know that the imposter, that is Jesus, he claimed himself that he was going to rise after three days. And because he made these claims himself that he was going to rise after three days, hey, we want to do something about it. So this is what they said next. Therefore... Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will become worse than the first. So Pilate then said to them, hey, you have a guard of soldiers, which we know would have been a minimum 50 soldiers to be on the case of securing Jesus. He says, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. 
Now, this guard would have included a watch, and those watch would have been four soldiers on four-hour increments, and they would have watched Jesus for three consecutive days because Pilate had issued this command. Now, the question that I would ask is, why are the Pharisees and the Sadducees even asking Pilate to do something if they didn't believe Jesus was dead? So they believe Jesus is dead. Pilate believes Jesus is dead. And then obviously they have all these soldiers who are going to guard a tomb. And the reason why is because they are worried that after the third day, Jesus will disappear. You see the, the case here? That's what Matthew's saying happened. Now, here's what's incredible. It did happen. And the reason why it happens is because they're, they're worried about the commotion that's going to be caused. So they go and they're worried that, that Jesus is going to escape. And so they set a guard. Then the question is, is, okay, what happened next? Well, we know that the body comes up missing. So here's the first question you have to ask yourself. If Jesus lost consciousness or he fainted, is it possible, is it plausible that Jesus got up on the third day and he walked out of the tomb himself? Is it possible with no IVs, no medical attention at all, no sedation to keep him in place where he could be restored back to health, is it possible, is it plausible that a man in his condition would not only wake up out of consciousness, but then move a stone and overthrow a Roman guard? I'd say no, right? Like it just seems the plausibility of that, it would be no, it couldn't happen. The, the question then is, okay, is it possible um, that, that there was something else? Well, I, I don't know. But here's what I would tell you is this. It's Frederick Zujibi. He was a uh, forensic pathologist. He, he's looked into the evidence around this. And this is what he concluded. According to Zujibi, he says, the long spikes that would have penetrated Jesus' feet would have caused massive swelling, severe pain, beginning from the first hour of the cross and over the next few days would have become so massively swollen and infected beyond any immediate healing capability. Jesus would not have been able to stand on his feet or, or walk for at least one month or longer. Zujibi then goes on and he says, it is not possible, let alone, that Jesus would have survived the crucifixion with no drugs or medications at the time because nothing would have been able to stop the pain that Jesus experienced or put him in a deep sleep to help feign off death. So Jibi says, listen, I've studied this. He goes, it's not plausible that Jesus survived it, but even if he did survive it, he goes, there is no way he walks out of the tomb with his own, on his, in his own condition, okay? So then the question is, okay, well, if that didn't happen, then is it possible that the disciples stole his body? Is that a plausible scenario? And I would say, absolutely, I think it's a plausible scenario. It could have been that men stole the body of Jesus, corroborated his story, and, and made some significant event hap happen in history. It, it could happen. But then you got to ask the question of what was happening in that day and time after the body of Jesus went missing. So it did go missing. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 and following, this is what Matthew said. He says, while they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. What had taken place? The body of Jesus had come up missing. So after the body of Jesus come up missing, it says, when they gave, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, hey, tell the people, what? His disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. Keep who out of trouble? the soldiers who fell asleep on their four-hour watch. What's problematic about this? You remember if a criminal escapes, guess whose life is on the line? Four soldiers. So why is it that these men are coming to them and saying, hey, listen, don't worry, we'll pay you a large sum of money to make up a story. You tell them this, we'll protect you. Verse 15, look what the implication was. They took the money, 
And they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Where did the story begin? With the disciples? No. With the Pharisees, with the scribes, and with the Roman guard. What's, what's the problem with this story? Is there a problem at all? Well, as I was examining this, I was just looking at There were a couple of things that I looked at that kind of, I, I guess you would say, were problematic to me. One is that there was a lie. Now, I've never been paid a sufficient sum of money at all to tell the truth. When is, when is it that money is wired or laundered or, or moves from one account to the other? It's when you're covering something up. You don't pay people to tell the truth. You pay people to lie. Why is it that these men go to the soldiers and say, hey, we'll give you a large sum of money to tell the story this way? It's because it seems to be a lie. So it doesn't seem to be plausible that the body of Jesus was stolen if they're having to lie. But let's consider it further. Is it possible that the disciples who, by the way, were running for their lives and scared to death, is it possible they overthrew a Roman guard and they stole the body of Jesus? I mean, you go, well, maybe, but here's the problem with that. You remember a guy named Peter who denied Christ three times? Where was he? He doesn't seem to be a great eyewitness to the account, does he? He ran and he fled. So is it possible the disciples stole the body? Maybe, but you're, you have a problem with that. One is it's unlikely that these men went and, and were any match for Rome. It's, it's likely, unlikely that they rolled away the stone. And then what do they do next? They have to take and transport a dead man's body in a timely fashion and not get caught. So you have some challenges to this idea, but it goes further than that. You know who first discovered the tomb was empty? You know, you know where the problem first began? It first was discovered among a handful of ladies. Matter of fact, Luke, great historian, he writes this in Luke chapter 23 and chapter 24. Look what Luke writes. He says, The women that had come from, uh, with him from Galilee, meaning with Jesus from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So they care for the body of Jesus. That's on a Friday. And it says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, which would have been a Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spice that they prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, Luke continues that account in chapter 24, and he says, they saw men dazzling with white. It was two of them. Those men then addressed something, and they said this question in verse 5. Hey, why is it that you're seeking the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day to rise? And then they remembered his words. And they returned to the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna the Mary, uh, and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them that told them these things to the apostles. Look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So the women say the tomb is empty. They come back to the disciples and the lead, and the lead witness in this case is Mary Magdalene, a woman with a troubled past. And she is telling the disciples, this is what happened. And they go, you're making it up. Now, quick question. If you're disciples and you stole the body of Jesus somehow, are you going to make an eyewitness to your account, Mary Magdalene, a woman with a troubled past? And more than that, a woman in that culture alone. Do you guys know, you know why you wouldn't pick a woman? Because a woman was a second-class citizen in that particular time, and they could not testify at court. 
they could not corroborate a story as an eyewitness account. They would not have been eligible. So the question is, if Jesus was stolen by the disciples, why in the world would they choose to tell the story from the lens of a, of a woman's eyes? It wouldn't make sense, would it? And so here's what I would ask you. Is it plausible that Jesus lost consciousness and he fainted somehow? you got to decide that. Is it possible that the body of Jesus was stolen? you got to decide that. What I would say is this. All the facts are leading that something else must have occurred. Something else had to have occurred. I think maybe it was that they were hallucinating. There is an actual, there's actual people who would believe that the eyewitnesses to this account were hallucinating. That they believed it so much in their heart that they convinced themselves in their mind. Now listen, can that happen? Can an individual person believe something so much that they actually convince themselves to a place of hallucination. And I would say psychology supports such a claim. It does. Um, there are places that people can get clinically that they actually believe or hallucinate over a source of things. The question is, is did that happen in this case? Now, this theory kind of originated with 19th century theologian, a guy named David Strauss. David uh, Grew up really in, in some ways believing, eventually did not believe in the claims of Jesus. But here's what he would say he did believe. He believed that Jesus was indeed a historical figure. He did believe that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, he did believe that, that um, with, no, with no problems or disputes that, that Jesus was crucified, flogged, and that he was held as a criminal by Rome. He would agree with all those things. Where David Strauss would say did not happen is that that there was an empty tomb. So he would say, plausibly, there's only a handful of arguments. One is that the ladies went to the wrong tomb or that there was hallucination that occurred. And he happens to believe that theory, that there was hallucination. But the challenge is, is that it didn't just stop with Mary Magdalene and a handful of women, did it? Matter of fact, John, the most beloved disciple of Jesus, do you know what John says? John says this in chapter 20 of his own uh, narrative. Look what John says. He says, eight days later, this is in chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. He goes, eight days later, which would have been 11 days after the crucifixion. He said this, his disciples were inside again. They were gathered together. They were still scared, still worried for their lives. They were inside, and then Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. That's a pretty significant quote. So somehow he miraculously appears in the room, and then he says, peace be with you. And now how in the world do you appear miraculously in the room and then use the words, peace be with you? But he did. That's the account. Now look what happens next. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So John writes the account. And he says, we saw him. The disciples were there. Thomas touched him. But it doesn't stop there. Paul writes the church of Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes an account. Now, real quickly, just so you know who Paul is, Paul was formerly a guy named Saul. Saul hated Jesus. Saul hated the church. Saul had killed many men because they were part of the way. So Saul, it was really not a biased account here. So this is what Saul writes after he becomes Paul. He says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared then to Cephas. That would have been Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, listen, 
I was an eyewitness account to other people. Like, I, I know people that heard it and saw it. He goes, I knew this guy. I knew what was going on. And he didn't just appear to the women. He didn't just appear to uh, the disciples and to Thomas. But he appeared to James. And he appeared to 500 people at one time. So he goes, this is something that's really significant and you have to pay attention to. Which then leads me to an outside source. Uh, there's a, a professor of counseling at Liberty University. His name's Gary Sipsey. And this is what Gary Sipsey wrote uh, of all the years of clinical psychology in which he is an expert in. This is what he says. He says, I have surveyed the professional literature, which is peer-reviewed journal articles and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades, and yet to find a single documented case of group hallucination. That is, an event for which more than one person purportedly shared in a visual or other sensory perception where there was clearly no external referent. What does that mean? He goes, it is not possible that Jesus was hallucinated by 12 people or 16 people or 500. He goes, it doesn't happen like that. Which is a question I'd ask you. Where were you? If you're older than 25, where were you on 9-11-2001? Where were you? When the event happened of the Twin Towers, do you remember where you were? You remember what was happening? I was driving down the road on Highway 34 in between Quinlan and Cash. My wife and I uh, were going to school at Texas A&M Commerce. We were listening to Christian music. We were talking when all of a sudden our... our uh, Music was interrupted by the Twin Tower story. Uh, we, let, we went to school. We began to see it on TVs. We began to see all that it's unveiling. The, the, the second plane hits. Uh, there's confusion. There's chaos. School is canceled that day. We have prayer gathering at our local church. And from then on, every church in America is full. I'll never forget that day. Now, why do I share that with you? It's because it's within 25 years. Do you know when Paul writes this account in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 15, that he's within 25 years of the event himself. Do you know what he said? He goes, I'm not, just, I'm not just telling you this. He says, I'm telling you that there are people that witness it and they're still alive. Some are dead, but you can go visit with them. Paul writes that within 25 years of the event himself. And he goes, listen, it wasn't hallucination. Which then begs the question, okay, what do you do with this? If, if Jesus didn't die, he didn't swoon, didn't lose consciousness, or he didn't somehow faint, he didn't walk out of the tomb on his own, a story was made up by other people that his body would be stolen, but there's no way plausible that the 12 men stole his body, and there's no way plausible that 515 plus witnesses hallucinated the event. The question that you have to ask yourself is, what happened? Can we go to one more outside source? A guy who has no skin in the game other than he was a Jew. He was born four years after the event of the crucifixion. His name is Flavius Josephus. He writes uh, articles um, and books uh, about Jewish history called Antiquities of the Jews. In his 18th volume, this is what he said about the guy named Jesus. Put it for you up on the screen. You go read it for yourself in another place. About this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so. For he appeared to them on the third day restored to life. 
as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of the Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. Why have Josephus, a historian, what did he say? He goes, I can tell you as an outside source, one who wasn't even born, but knows Jewish history and all the stories that are circulating in my day and time. He goes, I can tell you that Pilate killed Jesus. I can tell you that he was restored to life on the third day, and that's the story that they're sticking with it. He goes, and I can tell you that he was not only claimed to be the king of the Jews, but I can tell you that the people who follow him haven't ceased to this day. I don't know about you, but that's pretty significant evidence. Let's go to one more person. Y'all remember a guy named Chuck Colson? Charles Colson, a lot of you older ones would remember Watergate. The Watergate scandal, he was involved. He was one of 12 men. This is what Charles Colson said. He goes, 12 of the most powerful men on the planet could not cover up the scheme of Watergate for three weeks. He goes, I came to believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection because it is no way possible that 12 men could have kept this a secret for 40 plus years. And he said, and that enough was to help you see that the, the disciples would not have endured all they did to cover up a lie. You don't get paid off for lies. Or you, you don't get paid off to tell the truth. You endure consequences for the truth. But you get paid off to tell lies. Chuck Colson became a believer after the Watergate scandal because he said there's no way that Watergate could be any different than the resurrection. He goes, it was an event of significant proportion. And he goes, and one couldn't be covered up because it was a lie, and the other one didn't need to be covered up because it was the truth. And you got to wrestle with that. For those of us in here that you're wondering, could such a significant event in history happen? Listen, if it did, it means that it's time to trust Jesus with your life. If it didn't, it means our faith is futile and our gathering is in vain. We should find something other to do, like a really good hobby. But friends, I can tell you, as I've explored the evidence, the only thing that I could conclude that's logical, that's logical and that makes sense, is that the Sanhedrin couldn't keep him down. The Sadducees couldn't keep him down. Social norms and societal things couldn't keep him down. That he has resurrected. And what I would just say, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, is that 2,000 plus years have happened. The Muslims even claim to know where Jesus was buried, yet you still don't have a body. And if you don't have a body, then you have to understand that something happened significantly. And it's either a big lie or indeed it's a risen Savior. That on the third day, Jesus was resurrected. And friends, I happen to believe that narrative myself. Why? Because archaeological evidence, historical evidence, forensic science, and lots of outside sources that had no involvement at all would say that's the events that transpired. And if it did, it should change your life and it should change the way we lived them. And I pray that it would. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, that to this day there has been no body that has been found. I thank you that, Lord, we have story after story after story. We have peer-reviewed literature. We have forensic science. We have archaeological evidence. We have so many theories that have been disputed that, Lord, all we can come to the conclusion is is that the body of Jesus has not been found. And because of that, we choose to believe as believers that he was resurrected on the third day. And we thank you. 
for that incredible truth. Lord, it should change our lives. It should change our desires. It should change the way we make choices with our lives. It should change the way we rear and teach our children. Lord, for many of us in this room, I pray that such evidence would inspire us to be more committed to you and be more committed to your church and be more committed to the things that you've called us to. Lord, for those of us who we've wandered slowly, we've drifted away, God, would you encourage us through your word and through your message to to return to you and be a part of your bride to the church? For friends in this room that they're doubting, they're speculating, they're wondering, could this all be true? I pray you would impress upon their heart by your Holy Spirit what the truth is, and that you would bring them into the part of your family, the family of God today. Lord, for those of us who believe, I pray that we would express it in the way we sing here in a few moments, in the way that we live our lives out in the public sector. May we love our community well. May we serve others who are less fortunate than us. And more, may we make a difference in our county and across the world. We thank you. We love you. And we know that the resurrection has implications. I pray we'd see it. In Jesus' name we pray.